0: All right, any mistakes I make this morning are partly due to the fact that I've finally been shamed enough to be start reading out of an ESV Bible. What was the last sermon I'm listening to Steve Green preach, and Steve's like, I'm actually reading out of the ESV. Heaven knows what EC's reading out of, so finally. <laughs> so that's, everybody's on the same page. So, if I, so this, is a, this is an unfamiliar sword to me, right? So when you have a new tool, you're not sure you're going to be using it terribly well, but I, I, I'm, I'm optimistic. Much of, the, much of the words are the same. Uh, we've been working through the liturgical year calendar. We've been focusing on uh, First Corinthians readings over the course of, of this season, uh, preparing for Lent. And uh, we've worked through Paul's amazing teaching about this, this radically different community of faith, uh, radically different in every facet from the cults and the mystery religions, and even, to a great degree, the daily lived-out application of parts of the Jewish faith of his day. And... Because of that, it's not surprising, and this is always really helpful, right, uh, for us to remember that when we see the church today and there's stress and there's strife and there's disagreement, we don't always fire on all cylinders, that the only reason we have all of Paul's books is because in some way or another, the church was involved in strife or stress or wasn't falling, you know, firing on all cylinders. That, that The challenge of the church living in the reality of the kingdom of God And in full embracing of the implications of what it means to be transformed and unconditionally loved and to be radically transformed because Christ lived, suffered, died, and rose again for us. And teasing out those implications, they just run contrary to so much of what feels to be expedient in the moment. And certainly those challenges are faced when we are wrestling with what it means to be in community. And so we work through the aspects of community that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. And then the last time I was here, which now ends up being two weeks ago, was a conversation about the nature of God's love and how love is a hallmark of the community of faith. And what it means to be a part of the body of Christ is only possible if we operate out of love. You can't create the body of Christ having theological orthodoxy only. You can't have the body of Christ functioning with uh, mercy and service and social justice only. Without love, you're a resounding gong. None of those things. I could give everything away. If I have not love, I gain nothing. If I have all knowledge and all theological proof texts, And have not love. I have nothing. And so all of the things that the world would tempt individual churches to make as their moniker and their attraction. We are the place where there's truth. We are the place where people are loved unconditionally. None of those matter if it's not actually the love of God. And what we know about the love of God is that it is anchored in truth. It's also anchored in mercy. It's so rich and diverse and full and weighty. That a community of faith and individual lives transformed by a meditation on the desire to love as God loves us is something the world rarely sees. And when it does, it usually is seen as quite attractive. And people are drawn to it. The only people who become instantly afraid, and we looked at this earlier in Acts, are those in power. Because that's the only power they have. Either they give you stuff... Or they make you feel like you're smarter than everybody else. And you pull those two away, how do you maintain earthly power? That's why the rulers and our authorities are afraid of the church, is when the love of Christ is poured out, it undermines worldly power and authority. There is also another component of what Paul sees as fundamental to the Christian life that undermines the power of the world, and that is the reality of the resurrection. And so this morning we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to start in verse 35. I'm going to read all the way through uh, verse 50. There is no way to overemphasize how fundamental the resurrection is to Paul's belief and actions and what he thinks should be the motivation for the believer and for the community of faith. It, it, a functional bodily resurrection. Hear now God's word. But some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat, ...or of some other grain, but God gives it a body, he, uh, as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of human, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is of another... There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness and raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spirit that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, from the earth, uh, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven as was the man of dust so also are those who are of the dust and as is the man of heaven so also are those who are of heaven just as we have been just as we have borne the image of the man of dust we shall also bear the image the man of heaven i tell you this brothers flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of god nor does the imperishable inherit that, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would again impress upon us how wonderful and deep and rich and wide, And weighty is the promise and the reality of the resurrection. Lord, we ask that as we reflect upon it, it might revive in us the strong sense of confidence, of hope, as we look out at the world around us. And whatever is said, Lord, this morning that is not true, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, So, again, a a passage we're we're familiar with uh, in one way or another. Uh, Handel has it sung lovely uh, in a different uh, translation. But there is a lot that is misunderstood about this text. And I am not going to be able to unpack all of that this morning. But I want to reflect and perhaps just put a couple of anchors in. I don't know if you've uh, seen uh, the Marvel movies or any, any great hero movie, right? But there's always some hero that has those amazing winches, whether it's like Batman, or, uh, but every time they fall, they can shoot out this grappling hook that automatically catches and saves them. And so I'm hoping this morning that all I can do at the very least is maybe throw a few anchors out that can hold us from floating off too far into the ether in speculation of spiritual bodies and transformations in a way that is unhelpful or maybe even reductionistic, that at the very least, even though this is an incredibly challenging thing to imagine because it will both be so different and the same, that the speculation can we can float just off into all manner of ideas that may be personally appealing but not terribly beneficial. And so, this morning, my hope is that we can throw out a few anchors to keep us somewhat grounded. Now, when we reflect on this text, uh, again, tis the season to be sick. Uh, Many of you have been. uh, And you know that when you're sick, really sick, and you look at yourself in the mirror, it's hard to see yourself. Like, you don't appear to be who you really are. You can be slightly grayer than normal, slightly thinner. In various ways, a sick person does not really look like you look when you are healthy. And there is a possibility here that as we begin to think about what Paul is trying to point us to, is that there is a way in which the human being currently as we live, as flesh and blood, plagued by sin, even though we are declared righteous in Christ, are pretty sick people. That we often wrestle with those illnesses that are common to the flesh, lust and fear and desire and anxiety, and it perverts the very way in which we see ourselves in the mirror. That that which we should reflect doesn't seem to be what we actually see in the mirror. And that as Paul is trying to help the Corinthians understand what's going on in the promise of the resurrection, he wants them to see that even though their reflection currently is not the way that they will look, the answer is not something completely so other and different that they wouldn't even understand it. That it isn't something purely spiritual or floating off into the ether or becoming stars or birds or angels. You are you. You don't know what you will look like when you're healthy. You don't know yet how glorious and wonderful it will be to be you when you're 100% you and fully resurrected. And Paul wants us to understand that. Now, how do I know that? How do the scholars know that, more importantly? Well, it's clear that what Paul wants to do is anchor this in Genesis, not surprisingly, 1, 2, and 3. That Paul's groupings of talking about the resurrected body and the way this transformation will happen clearly reflect that great truth about the creation of the world and the way in which God created and therefore the value of creation. Because there are many ways in which Paul is answering questions that you and I aren't necessarily privy to, but we can imagine what they are. One of them is the pressure that this world is so painful, so ugly, so depressing, that we're going to adopt an almost Buddhist sense that it must be a horrible mistake. And that maybe someday we can go back to the spiritual oneness and cease to know the pain of identity and separation. Or maybe a platonic view that it is just the muck that holds us back from our spiritually successful selves. All of these notions are batting around Corinth in one form or another. And so Paul, interestingly enough, gives us lots of ties back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to anchor his conversation about and his explanation of the spiritual life, the spiritual resurrected body. So how do we know this? All right, well, first of all, there's a question that's asked, right? Go ahead and turn your text. We're going to go through it. Paul's great at being able to uh, sort of point at the text and get my next point. I hardly need notes. We have a question that Paul asks, somewhat rhetorically, but he answers it, right? He answers it in 38. The question in 35 is answered in 38. How is this going to be? What kind of a body will come? It'll be the body that God gives you. It'll be the body that God gives you. So, there is a sovereign creator God who is in the business of creating things in his design for his purposes, So how do we know what kind of body we'll get? How are we going to get one? God will give it to you. Well, how's it connected to me? Well, have you seen and do you understand what happens with a seed? And he goes back to Genesis chapter 1 and all of the seed-bearing plants being given according to their kind and they go into the ground. But you know what? Very rarely, aside from the fact that if I see an acorn come from an oak tree... But I imagine that when I put that in the ground, that's what it's going to look like in 100 years? We know it backwards, which is fine. But the reality is that when you put that seed in the ground, if you've never seen what that plant is, you won't know what it'll look like. You can only speculate. Because the seeds very rarely have the shape of the plant that they end up growing into. And not only that, there's certain ways in which even science today can't tell us how plants grow. We don't actually understand why photosynthesis is a thing. We know it is a thing. We can kind of describe what it is, but we don't know why it's a thing. There is a mystery, there is a reality that a sovereign God who creates will give you the body. Just as he gives the body from the seed. Gives a whole new plant. And it has to go in the ground and it has to change. Now, again, we shouldn't get overly uh, literal in the sense that everybody has to be buried, but it is one of the reasons why the Christian tradition is not cremation, but is internment in the ground. The expectation of the resurrection, it had this sense. Now, the good news is it was never viewed in some sort of cheap, carnal way that early Christians thought that if you destroyed their bodies by burning them that they would not get resurrected, right? Nobody was ever that uh, superstitious. But there was a basic sense of honoring this reality of the resurrection that one would be buried. And much as a seed, one would be raised anew with a new body. Theological significance to it. And so we have initially this idea that there is going to be recreation. Sorry, I should have given you the three points. I thought it was so clever, but then I forgot. We're going to look at recreation, the tying to Genesis 1 and 2. Then we're going to look at reconciliation, Genesis 3.15. And then we're going to look at restoration, Genesis 1, 26, uh, 28, and Genesis 2, 17. So those are our little tie-ins. So we're in the midst of recreation. So the seeds, 37 and 38, point to transformation, but they also point to the rhythms of creation and the value of them. These are good things to emulate. God is in control of them. There's nothing wrong with the material world. Paul anchors it in these concrete examples. Second of all, animals, right? There's different kinds of flesh. Now again, there's nothing weird about that. We now know, and they knew back then, that birds' bones look different than your bones. Why? Well, they were designed to fly. There are differences in the different kinds of animal flesh. There are different purposes for them, and they have different manifestations at the created order of God. There is diversity in creation, and each one has its purpose and its place. Paul does not mean here anything other than something that simple. There are human bodies. There are earthly bodies in creation. They have substance. They have standards. They have Norms And they're not all the same. And in the same way, when we talk about the spiritual, it will be different. It will not be exactly the same. It will have a different substance and purpose, even as it is rooted and grounded in the reality of recreation, of God making all things new, including you. It is recreation, not the destruction or abandonment of it. And so Paul very simply takes the examples of the differences between birds and fish and animals to reinforce the point that that is also going to extend to this thing called the resurrected body, the heavenly body, the one that we will have when we are no longer sick and what it will look like. And then thirdly, he references the universe itself and the importance of the stars and the moon and the sun and how they have different roles and different substances. The light of the moon, we know, and they probably did then too, is a reflection of the sun's light. It has no light in and of itself, but it has a reflected glory. There are different ways in which the stars and the planets And the moon interact. And because of that, because of that rhythm in God's creation, because of that beauty and glory, Paul reinforces again, it will be a recreation. It will be a renewing of. So we have, first and foremost, in verses 35 to... 41, and anchoring in Genesis 1 and 2, the value and reality of creation as a touch point, as a way to understand and at least get a hint of the parameters of what this resurrected body will be like. It will be the same, but different. It will reflect the same glory, but as creation always had, it will be different in its substance. But there is, of course, a problem. There's a problem with getting this new body. Uh, The problem goes back to Genesis chapter 3. And we see an indication of his reference to the problem in verses 42 and following. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. The sowing of the perishable uh, needs to be raised imperishable. So there's a challenge, right? It's not just different flesh, but we need something imperishable. And the problem of Genesis 3 is we all became very perishable. Right? We got short uh, shelf lives. We need something imperishable. The body is broken. It rejected God. It cut itself off. And physical death is now a reality. How on earth will we get it? Well, the answer, of course, in Genesis 3, is that there will be one who comes who will crush the head of the serpent, crush death, even as it bruises his heel, and the imperishable will be restored. We will have a new body. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised in a spiritual body. Now, again, we got to be careful the way so much of our culture impacted by the Enlightenment, impacted by so many unhelpful thoughts. Not new. They were pressing in on the early church as well. None of the philosophies that we wrestle with today are new. They sometimes like new language. But they are all old. Even what we see as the the, the, the pressure of science and the pressure of Uh, the material world and the atheist who says there's nothing but God, that's just Epicureanism. That's really, really old, that there is nothing but matter. It just happened to be resurrected in the Enlightenment and because, like most people who like to think they have a new idea, the Enlightenment claimed that they made it up. But they didn't. The idea that the material world is all there is is an ancient notion. Just as the notion that there is only bad matter and we should all escape into a spiritual existence. And so when Paul here is talking about the natural body versus the spiritual body, notice how he regulates it with this sense of order. There is a body which you now inhabit, which is for all intents and purposes, the natural body you live in. It is a body which is perishable, designed by God, reflecting the image of God, yet marred by sin and must be remade. And we're going to call that the spiritual body, the body that is born in the spirit. It doesn't mean that nature is bad and spirit is good. It means you have something now we're calling the natural body, what you will have in the resurrected state, which will be a different kind of flesh. But remember, we reference seeds and fish and birds and the stars in creation you will have a new body but its source now will be the spirit itself your soul completely connected to god no longer split it's the promise of what happens in our glorification when this awkward in between time when we are both filled with the spirit but not fleshly reborn in the spirit that weirdness will be undone And you will have a Spirit-driven, Spirit-enabled, Spirit-empowered, Spirit-filled body that we can barely taste now. Not that we don't taste it, we do. The Spirit is not a future promise. It is currently with us. That's Pentecost. That's the beauty of that. But imagine a body completely formed and driven in creation, renewed and recreated, by the spirit that's what he's talking about he's talking about the restoration and the promise and the fulfillment of genesis 3:15 the one has come death has been defeated and we are heading to and are now in a time where we can count the moments if you will to the resurrection it is assured it is secured Paul talks about this same idea in Philippians chapter 2. We know the poem. Uh, Quick critique on on this Bible. As wonderful as it is, it doesn't have that wonderful song in Philippians 2 as a song. It just has it in regular text. But nonetheless, it translates it correctly. And there is this beauty of the reality that God took on something in Christ that was seen to be shameful. A perishable body. uh, uh, Available... Subject to sickness and tiredness and weariness and illness and bleeding and death. He takes it on. He goes through death for us and he gets back up. <clears throat> and he's still touchable, but he's different. He still has the scars, but he is different. He still delights to break bread with his disciples, but he's different spirit driven body raised imperishable so we have reconciliation we are offspring of a new line we look forward to that day when this new line promised all the way back in genesis 3:15 has its resurrection day and finally a, major, uh, a measure of restoration of the image of God itself. Again, if you know your scriptures, when I refer to Genesis chapter 1, uh, 26 through 28, that is God's uh, divine counsel amongst himself to determine to create humanity, male and female, in his image. To be image bearers, to reflect his glory, to participate in creation with him, that he might share it with us. Genesis chapter 2-7, where God slows down the creative process and gets down in the dirt himself and forms Adam. And then later he will form Eve from Adam, both intimate and personal and unique creative acts. He slows down to create humanity, both male and female, in personal, intimate, Moments of creation where he imparts a measure of his image, the ability to reflect his image. And then breathes into them that they might be a living spirit. It's been marred by sin. Our ability to reflect God. Again, as I said, and I, I, most people know that this was not tongue-in-cheek. It was hard to say thanks be to God after reading Luke. There's very little in that passage that I am good at. Mostly it just feels like a litany of the things that I failed to do out of my fears. I don't love my enemies well. I'm not terribly generous. I am amazing at keeping long accounts. And yet there is a promise. And there is in small ways where that's less and less true of me than it was ten years ago. Because God delights to see me grow through you caring for me, through the Spirit moving, through the Word of God preached and read and worship. We are being renewed by the Spirit. There is a great degree in which we even now get to experience reflecting the glory of God and to see ourselves a little bit healthier. We are not going to get fully healthy this side of glory. This body will not be turned into, at least by my own efforts, a glorified flesh. And yet because the Spirit does live in me, there are ways in which reflecting the future glory of who I will see myself to be is possible now in the way that I care for you and you care for me. The degree that I begin to see the character and nature of God more and more borne out in my life and in my care for my wife and my children and my friends. It's possible. In fact, it is the reality of what is being given. So finally, we recognize that we have something incredibly unique. And this is a challenge, right? You get to something like this. This passage, as much as any other passage in Scripture, sets Christianity apart. Resurrection, bodily resurrection and renewal, is not something that our Buddhist friends are looking for. It's not something that our Hindu friends are looking for. It's not something that our... Mormon friends are looking for. It's not something that anybody but a traditional Christian is looking for. And that in and of itself is somewhat offensive in our day and age. And yet it is to no advantage to pretend that it isn't unique. It is a very different thing to want to be a star or an angel than to be resurrected bodily. It is a very different thing to imagine this creation to be its own hell in which I am reborn time and time again, depending on how good I was, whether or not I go up the ladder or down the ladder in the quality of species that I become. This isn't meant to say that we despise anyone nor that we judge. In fact, scriptures are clear that we should not be the judge, that God alone is the judge. But in our interactions with our friends who follow different faiths, we must not and cannot suggest that the promise of a bodily resurrection is anything other than what it is, and that will be offensive enough to wrestle with and to hold to The promise of this creation being renewed, that it needs to be renewed, is potentially offensive. That it won't be destroyed may be viewed as offensive. That this is my eternal existence yet uncompleted. But nonetheless, my future existence is to exist materially in this world renewed by the Creator. To be replaced... Not with something completely different, but to have the, imper- the perishable be renewed with the imperishable it is paul 's contention that if we preach the resurrection, it will define the character of christ's church, and if we fail to preach the resurrection as it is exhorted, uh, as it is explained and encouraged in Paul. We will fail to express the biblical faith. And in so doing, we will lose what creates a reality of distinction between us and the philosophies of the world because it is so radically odd. And I know I'm going into a tirade here. But to legitimately consider either this place really, really bad and needing... Fixing is offensive to the materialist because, at the very least, the material world should be seen as neutral and people as neutral. And we cannot say that. It was created good and it has gone far afield. It must be fixed. And there is justice and there is judgment. And it is not in my hands, but it is in God's. And that which we all find offensive and evil will need to be addressed. And at the same time, it is so dearly loved that he gave himself, participated in it, suffered its own injustices and evils that it might be renewed and restored, not blown up, but refined, restored and renewed. And that's offensive to a whole other group. It is that tension. It's why Christians then become able to live the way Luke exhorts us to in the words of Jesus. It's how the early church began to live as generously and as radically as they did. It was the promise of a new creation. What happens if I don't live by these rules? It's not as if the pressures... Of finances, It's not if the fears of having your neighbor take your stuff were any less in the first century and therefore naive sort of weird cultic Christians lived odd lives giving each other money in extravagant ways. But in fact, all of the pressures were exactly the same. And yet somehow, the resurrection gave them a basis on which to live not out of the pragmatics of this world... But out of the restored realities of the new heavens and the new earth. They lived according to the ethics of the world they were in, in their spirit. In what they knew to be eternally real. Not in the immediacy and the expediency of the moment they found themselves in. Because they no longer feared the death of the perishable. Because they knew the power of the imperishable. It changed the way they saw everything that they had. And as soon as we begin to lose the power of the resurrection, that it becomes spiritual or philosophical or something other someplace else, or we are simply a faith about being saved from this world, we lose our saltiness. We lose our power. We lose any distinction between us and any other faith, honestly pursued, trying to make sense of a crazy world. Without the resurrection, we lose the difference in the power of the creator God's restoration. It is that fundamental. It is that fun to be set free, to know the power of the imperishable. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be gracious to the preaching of your word. Again, Lord, be patient. May we be patient with each other. May we embody the love of God so that even as we hold on to something as distinctive as the resurrection, it would be seen as a sweet and alluring fragrance to our friends who do not hold to the resurrection. Lord, may it enrich our relationships. And may we again look forward to the day when we will see you and ourselves whole and healed and beautiful. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.